So we really conclude this morning uh, this, well, I shouldn't say conclude the series because we'll conclude it on Christmas Eve, but this, uh, these weeks that we've been together, these last few weeks, to, in this series called Christmas Anticipation, where we've talked about, and I still have my, my, my gifts up here, we've just talked about the way that we anticipate what's coming, the way that we, we size up gifts and, and begin to, to try to formulate in our minds, speculate, if you will, what's inside and what's this present going to be and the way we shake and weigh and listen to the gifts to try to understand the nature and character of what's inside. And that has been the framework for us to spend these weeks looking at the words of the prophet Isaiah, the one, one of the prophets who foretold of the coming Messiah, the promised one, and, and gave us some ideas hundreds of years before he would be born about what, who this Messiah would be and, and, if you will, what his, not, not literal, but figuratively, the shape and the weight and the character of, of who he would be and who we know that he was through the accounts of the Gospels. And so we, we finish our journey through Isaiah, our short journey through Isaiah this morning, with Isaiah chapter 61. Three verses that we read here from the prophets that speak again to the promise of, of what is to come. So let me invite you to, to hear these words or to follow these words on the screen in front of you or to, to follow them in your Bible or whatever way you have in your own lap. Subtitled, The Year of the Lord's Favor. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that we would hear Your words here of hope, promise, and we would embrace them in such a way that they begin to shape the very character of who we are and create in us the character of Christ, that we would reflect your glory and live your love. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Want to get away? Yeah? That's the tagline, right? Want to get away? You know what product I'm talking about? Southwest Airlines. If you've seen the Southwest commercials for a little while now, that's, that's their tagline, want to get away. Now, a lot of times we initially hear that question, and instinctively, and I heard a few voices behind me say, yeah, I didn't even say where we're going, just yeah, <laughs> let's get away, let's, let's, let's get away. Uh, it's, uh, Calgon used to use that, Calgon, take me away, you know, that idea that we, we can escape. That's how Southwest has done it, their commercials uh, paint a picture of somebody doing something or, or tell the story of somebody doing something whether very very stupid or very embarrassing 
or just something that you instantly regret, you know, busting a TV, breaking somebody's window, doing something really embarrassing. And so that's kind of the immediate impact. Something less than desirable has just happened. Want to get away. Want to escape whatever problem you have just created. How many know what it's like to immediately wish you could escape the problem that you have just created? That moment the words come out of your mouth, the moment the, the action takes place, you, you do something that you just go, did that just happen? You know, it, it completes in your brain. Sometimes they're, they're lighthearted and, and um, insignificant. I, I, I've, the, the Living Nativity people have been having a lot of fun with me. Uh, because in one of the scenes, I don't know if any of you were in the scenes on Friday night, for whatever reason, now keep in mind that, that closing scene that I'm a part of, I don't know, Dave, how many times do you think we did that? 25 times over the course of two days? 25 times I did this. It's, it's roughly the same words each time. Garrett's in here, he'd hear it every time as he was one of the Josephs that would come around. And it's wise men, they're standing right in front of me, right in front of me. And I called them disciples. Twice in the same scene. Only one scene did I do it, but, you know, and you just go, and you hear the words come out. Now, that was, you know, we had a little fun with that. That happens. It's, I don't mean to say that was anything terrible, but, but the words come out, and, and your brain clicks in. Did that just really happen twice? Um, and, and so sometimes we find that. Now, sometimes it's much, much more significant. It's much more painful. You know, there are just there are moments, there's experiences that we wish we could just kind of get away. Maybe, and th- this time of year uh, is no exception. Maybe, maybe the, the season's over busy and there's too much happening. You just want to get away from all the activity and you want to get away from all the, the parties and all the, the, the goings and, and the shopping. Or maybe you want to get away from the bills that are going to be coming. Uh, maybe you want to get away from the family gatherings you'd really rather skip. Maybe. Um, Maybe you want to get away from the burdens that you're carrying, the memories that are haunting, the, the struggles that, that you're, you're feeling. Uh, there are times in our lives we just, we want to get away, and, and it, we want to set things back to a way they were at another time. You know, we long for a, for a simpler day or a simpler time or a better moment in our lives. It's kind of a, a recovery button in our lives is what we're looking for. I, our computers nowadays, maybe you know, they, they will occasionally, you can, you can set a recovery mode so that it'll take snapshots, uh, remember settings on your computer for certain periods of time. That way if, if your computer gets corrupted, you get a virus, something bad happens, you can reset it. You can say, computer, go back and boot up as if it was seven days ago. And it will remember what it was then, not what it is now, and it, it sets it back. How many of us wish there, we had that kind of button in our life where we could, we could recover? Yeah, we could recover. Well, Isaiah gives us an image of that kind of hope, that kind of, of promise, that, that kind of gift that God is going to inaugurate in the, the coming of the Messiah. I want you to hear again just the paraphrases, the, he has anointed me, good news to the poor, freedom for the captives, release from the prisoners, that he has, through this Messiah, 
There will be a crown of beauty, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. The righteousness will be on display. Isaiah's painting this, this picture of, of things being set right. He's, he's proclaiming a truth to a people who have been in exile, a people who've had their homeland decimated, who are full of despair and disappointment, disillusionment, who, who are long for things to be set right. And in doing that, he, he references something that's really easy for us to miss because it's not culturally significant for us. But in verse 2, Isaiah says that this promised Messiah is going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there's a few of you I know that, that know what the year of the Lord's favor is. But I'm going to assume most of you don't, because it isn't something that we talk a lot about. But it's, it's pulled from Leviticus 25. And, and to understand, and, and it would take an entire sermon and probably a series of sermons to unpack the year of the Lord's favor. So I'm, I'm going to just touch on it, and I know I'm not really going to do it justice. But if you understand the significance of seven, the, the holiness of seven, you, you can begin to, to get the framework here. Seven days God created. Well, seven days in the week. Six days God created. On the seventh day, what's he command? Rest. Sabbath. All right? Sabbath. The day of rest. That was very, very significant in the life of the Jewish people. It was the rhythm of their life. Friday night at sundown to Saturday at sundown was the Sabbath. And you rested. And they took that incredibly seriously. I've told you before, I've, I've used the story in the past of being in Israel on the Sabbath when elevators would open on every floor at the hotel we were staying because Orthodox Jews were in that hotel and to push a button was considered work. So you'd get on an elevator and you'd ride floor by floor because you did not work on the Sabbath. Now that may seem extreme, but recognize the importance, value, that kind of, of commitment. We we're, we're a time when, when we don't have a Sabbath period. Sunday is our Sabbath, but the reality is the rhythm of our culture no longer recognizes Sabbath. Many of you remember time when it did, when Sundays things were shut down. And, and we can lament that, but it is what it is. But, but so, so you've got that rhythm, that seven-day rhythm. Well, also in Leviticus, it talked about the seventh year. And in the seventh year, you let the soil rest. You did not plant in the seventh year. You did not harvest in the seventh year. God would bless you in the sixth year with an abundance of, of crop, an abundance of, of provision, so that on that seventh year you could let the land rest. And so there was a Sabbath year if you want to frame it that way. And then, after seven cycles of seven years, came the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. It was the 50th year. And what happened on the 50th year is that God hit, N.T. Wright says, he paraphrases, says on the 50th year, God hit the reset button. God hit the reset button to set things back the way that they were meant to be. In the 50th year, those of Israel who had become Slaves. We might kind of think of them as indentured servants. Very often, if the, eco the economy was so bad and times were so bad and you had no other way to provide for yourself or your family, you would sell yourself into slavery. You'd become a servant for others. 
Or if things were so bad, maybe you would sell your ancestral land, the land that had been in the family and part of, part of your inheritance. You would sell that because you had no other options. But in the year of the Jubilee, everything was reset. The slaves were set free, the Israelites, the, the, the people, brothers and sisters were set free. Land was returned. Things were meant to be restored. It was a recovery button, if you will, to make things right. And this kind of imagery is, is pervasive. And I say, now here's the problem. Here's the reality. That sounds great. We have very little history that they ever did it. We, don't, we, don't, we have very little belief, historical scholars have very little belief that the, the people of Israel ever actually recognized the year of Jubilee. But they understood the imagery. They understood the significance of this hope that one day everything would be set right. Because the Israelites saw themselves as an oppressed people at this time. They saw themselves as the downtrodden, the, the, the ones who had had their homeland stolen from them. And they longed for recovery. They long for reset. And this kind of language, as I said, is pervasive. I want you just to listen. I want you to listen. Some of the, some of the scriptures from Isaiah, I want to just, just, just throw some verses at you and have you hear this imagery that, that is pervasive in Isaiah's prophecies. Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. This should sound familiar to some of you. Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places become a plain. Everything will be leveled. Isaiah forty twenty three. he brings the princes to naught. And reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. Isaiah 42, 16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. I will turn their darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 11.4 But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Isaiah 11.6 The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and lion with the yearling together. The little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down Together, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Over and over, Isaiah wants him to understand that this Messiah, this one who is coming, is going to set things right. The oppression that they feel, the burdens that they carry, the injustice that they suffer, will be leveled. The playing field will be leveled. And what Isaiah does is he gives them a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. Where Paul would say there is no slave or free. There is no male or female. There is no Gentile or Jew. The playing field is leveled. Now, I want you to hear from the gospel of Luke. Chapter 4, when Jesus, 
at the very beginning of his ministry. He's been through his temptation in the wilderness. He's just beginning this public ministry that God has called him to. And he goes into the synagogue to teach. I want you to hear what he teaches and hear the words that he speaks. Verse 16, chapter 4. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah it was handed him to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind. Is this sounding very familiar to you? To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Let me pause for a moment. That's the teaching position. In Judaism, you stood to read the word, to read from the scrolls, and then the teacher would sit to teach. Except he didn't so much teach as he proclaimed. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The one who you have waited for, the one who is going to level the field, the one who is going to set the oppressed free, the one who is going to bring restoration is here. The one you have longed for has come. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know they did not take kindly to that. They knew Jesus. This, This is our Jesus. We watched this rug rat grow up. He played in our nursery. He ran around our synagogue. How could he say such things? And they would have ended his ministry there had they had their will, that God had other plans. But the point is, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom. He inaugurates the hope. He brings this, and his ministry is filled with his work to level the playing field, to say to the oppressed and the rejected and the hurting and the broken, You are free. Freedom has come, and it's in me. And the truth is, that's what he speaks to us. Because we may not think of ourselves in those kind of terms, but the reality is we all find ourselves in those places of feeling oppressed and weighed down and burdened. That's why I said those moments, not just moments, but but stretches of time and experiences we just want to escape from and become free, and we long for God to make things right And Jesus inaugurates that. He comes to bring that hope. It is not a removal of our burdens. You know, it's it's not what what we wish sometimes is that life had do-overs. You know, that that life we could remove the the mistakes and the repercussions. When I was a kid and we used to to play ball in the backyard or, or compete in some ways, at one point we had this habit, I don't know where we got this idea, but that you could just proclaim do-over when you messed up. You could just say, oh, do over. That didn't count. I played golf once with the guys. playing golf uh, up, in, up, in, up in North Carolina. I remember this story. It's so crazy. We were playing. There was three of us playing, and we were competing. We were playing to win. And he, gets, he, he addresses the ball. He's about 150 yards out, off, the, off the, the, the green. And for whatever reason, Ding Dong picks like a three iron. I don't know why. And he drives it 100 yards beyond the hole. And he looks and he's like, oh, I misread the distance. That didn't count. 
and he drops his ball. Like he's just going to, it just doesn't matter. Well, my mistake, we're going to do that again. And we, oh, no, you're not. No, 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 no. That's not the way life works. You got to deal with that mess you just created and try to recover. But what we wish is that we could we'd have that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm present with you. I'm here and I'm beginning this kingdom. I'm going to show you what the kingdom looks like. I'm going to instill in you the hope that you have that things can be redeemed. That my work is at work in your, my presence, my strength is at work in your life to begin to, to level the field, to begin to remove those burdens, those oppressions that you carry. Come to me, all you who are burdened, weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. Even in the midst of that, even in the, in the face of the struggles, it's God's promise. That's what we begin to experience in Christ. That's the freedom that he gives us, the hope that we have, the peace that we experience, the joy that is found, all these proclamations we make at advent that's what jesus shows us he's the one isaiah talked about and he points to himself as such in luke chapter 4 come to me and allow my kingdom begin to be at work in your life even in the midst of some of the junk you're going through because there's a promise for now and for what will come one day it will all be set right one day it will all be leveled but even in this time when it doesn't always feel that way christ is with us and that becomes our hope and our promise. That becomes what we cling to. But that's not all. Because that's the personal infusion of faith. But as I read this, as I read this, and, I, and, and what, what happened is over and over as I'm reading this, I, I began to, to think deeply and more significantly about this ministry of Jesus because this is what he does. This is what he shows over and over again. That's why I said to you a couple weeks ago, Jesus had a preference for the oppressed and the poor and the marginalized because he wanted desperately to level this field. And so his ministry was so often about healing the broken and, and touching the rejected, the, the woman who was hemorrhaging, the woman who'd been married five times, making connections and basically communicating very, very powerfully that you matter. That, that God is with you even in the midst of your brokenness. Because that's part of our promise. Uh, Peter Gomes, years ago, he was the um, chaplain and uh, taught at Harvard uh, and, and led the, um, one of, at, at the, the church there on the campus at Harvard. And he addressed a graduating class in 1998. Harvard grads. And he basically says to him something along the lines of, you know, in a few hours, you're going to be bestowed upon the degree that is going to count you among the educated men and women of this country. And he said, but the reality is, in your time here, what you've learned is how dumb you really are. <laughs> he said, you've learned how dumb you really are. And isn't that the sign of education? Isn't it, really? The, the smarter you get, the, a good education will convict you of how little you really know. It, it will humble you on how little you really know. That's what he says. And in, in a few hours, you're going you're gonna to be free. In a, in a day, you're going to be history. And he says, by Saturday, you're going to be toast. <laughs> he said, because what you know is everyone looks to you to be educated, to be, you know, your parents have invested in this. But, but he, you know that you can't even fool some of the people all of the time. He says, but there's hope. But there's hope because God has your future. God has your future. And in spite of of, of that. God ha will not abandon you. He will not leave you. He will not forget you. God doesn't go on sabbatical. Your hope 
is in him and him working through you in spite sometimes of you. That's, that's what he says to a, to a group of Harvard grads. and That's what God says to us. That's what his ministry always was, a reminder to those he'd encountered, you haven't been forgotten about. You matter. And what I just am reminded again, that this isn't just a message that we are meant to internalize. Thank you, Lord, that you are with me. Thank you, Lord, that you freed me. Thank you, Lord, that I have your hope. But it's a message we're meant to embody. We receive it and we become it. And we go about doing the things that Christ did. Years ago, Mother Teresa, before, obviously but before her passing, she was in a tour in Australia. And she was um, being accompanied by a Franciscan monk there. And he longed to talk and learn from her and spend some time with her, but she was so busy and there were always crowds around her and there were always events for her to, to be a part of that he never got any, any time to really be with her. And so at the end of this, as she's getting ready to fly to, to New Guinea, he looked at her and said, Mother Teresa, if I pay for my own plane ticket, if I pay for my own plane ticket, can I just fly with you to New Guinea and sit next to you so that I can learn from you? And the story is she looked at him and said, you have enough money to buy your own plane ticket to New Guinea? And he said, yes, ma'am. And he said, all right. She said, take that money and give it to the poor. And you will learn more from that act than anything I could ever teach you. Okay. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that, that convicts me. That's what, that's what we're called to do. Why, why do the ministries that we are called and blessed to be a part of infuse us with so much joy when, when people gather? Why do people gather every couple weeks and, and give away food? And, and why do people stuff boxes or, or put pack-a-sacks for kids or, or, or work at thrift stores selling sometimes really nice things for quarters? Why, why, do we, why do we bring food and why do we do these things? Because it's an opportunity for us to embody the gospel, to, to recognize that we're a we have a chance to be a part of leveling the playing field, of saying here it doesn't matter. One of my favorite scenes at this church that, that I catch when I'm here on Saturdays on occasion during the, um, the food distribution is when people are sitting in here eating. And I walk by and I'll see some of the guests, some of those who come um, to, to be served. And then I'll see some of our church folks who have been working and doing things, and they're sitting down, and everybody's sitting together. And I only know the difference because I, I can recognize who's from the church and who's not. But if you walk by, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know who are the, the ones receiving, who are in need. You wouldn't know who the ones who are serving because there's no distinction. The field gets leveled. The field gets leveled. I love when that's what the kingdom of God looks like. I had a chance years ago to be a part of a worship service at a church I served and our bishop came and preached and at that time Bishop Henderson African-American bishop and we had an African-American church that joined us and we had a group of bikers Christian bikers that came and, um, and the place was full and we're, so we got our, our kind of church congregation that looked kind of like us and we had the African-American church that was interspersed throughout and we had the bikers kind of in one corner and I was like this is what the kingdom of God looks like right here because it's leveled and we get to be a part of that. 
We get to engage that. So it's not just the words that God speaks to us. It starts there, but it's God's challenge. Because what does Jesus say in, Luke, in John chapter 13, verse 15? When he's washed the disciples' feet, he says to them, I have done this for you so that you'll do as I've done. So that you will do what I've done. And he's not just talking about that moment of washing feet. He's talking about the embodiment of his message. That you'll be the instruments of the kingdom. To begin to, to share this hope. And that we'll recognize God doesn't see the levels that we create. The distinctions that we create. He sees his people. And one day his kingdom is going to wipe those distinctions away. And that is our hope. Alan Emery was for many years a part of Christianity Today, was uh, uh, involved in Billy Graham's ministries for many years. He passed away uh, years ago, but he, he wrote a book called um, A Turtle on a Fence Post. And they were reflections and stories about life and, and perspectives from faith. And uh, he told a story from his childhood. He grew up in a very wealthy household um, from, from Boston, uh, a family of great means. They were on a train trip one day. Or one at one point in his life, and as I said, he was just a boy. And as they're they're on the, the train and they're getting settled, he notices that the porter, who's bringing their baggage and and kind of taking care of their needs, an African American gentleman, uh, was limping very noticeably. So later on in that day, the young boy asked him, "What? Why are you limping?" And he said, "I have an ingrown toenail, and it was treated yesterday, but it's become infected, and I'm in a great deal of pain." So later that night, or maybe the next morning, uh, the boy, he shares that with his father. And his father just kind of takes note of it. A few hours later, he notices that porter coming out of his parents' kind of chambers, quarters where they were on this train. And he's just crying, tears rolling down his face. And the young boy is kind of taken back, especially because he sees him coming out of his, his parents' chambers or room. And the, he goes into this kind of lounge area, and the young boy follows him, and, and he sits down next to him. He doesn't know what to say. And uh, he, he looks at him, and, and finally, when he kind of composes himself, he says, you know, are, are you okay? Is, is it your foot that is bothering you? And he said, no, it, it's, it's your parents. What do you mean? He said, well, your father, he, he came and he, he sought me out. And he said, can I take a look at your foot? He said, I'm not a doctor, but I may be able to help. And he's like, I didn't really want him to take a look at it. I didn't really want anything to, to get worse. But he's like, I let him. And, and I sat down, and he took my foot, and he took off the sock, and he opened the wound, and he looked at it, and he said, if you'll allow me to lance this and clean it, I think it will aid in the healing. And so he did. He took my foot and, and he lanced it and he cleaned it and he bound it up. And the, and the boy said, and, and now it hurts worse? And he said, no, it doesn't hurt at all. He said, but, but as we were talking, your father asked me if I loved Jesus. And I told him that I, I didn't, not the way my mother had. And he said to me, Jesus loves you. And he told me about Jesus. Then he led me in prayer. And as we sat there, he said, I knew what love looked like. I knew 
that Jesus loved me, and I prayed with your Father to receive Jesus. And now I know that I matter to God. And he said, boy, sometimes kindness makes us cry. Sometimes kindness makes us cry. And that story stuck with that young boy as it does with me, and I hope it does with you. We don't show kindness out of some altruistic motivation as if it's what we have to do. Do it because it's who we're, what we're called to do, because Jesus is, does it for us. He levels the field. We don't do it because it's us and them, because it's us and us, because we've been set free, and so has others. And we become part of that instrument that God uses to show his freedom and invite others into freedom, to, to help others experience the joy of, of a reset button that says that God will make things right, but in the meantime, God's with you. And that is our hope. That's our freedom. That's our joy. That's what the people longed for. That's what Isaiah said would come. And that's what we've experienced in Jesus. Know his freedom. But brothers and sisters, share it. Amen? Well, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your words of hope and joy and peace that really speak to our freedom that we have in Christ and the blessings you give through faith, that we would know that truth, but that we then become the instruments to share it, to, to live your love, to be a part of the kingdom work you've called us to, to level the field, because in Christ we are all one. The promise we've received is the promise we're called to live. Lord, give us hearts of obedience and faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's